This season of Hello Nature is brought to you by the 2024 Subaru Outback Wilderness, the ultimate expression of the legendary capability of the Outback line. In addition to its 9.5 inches of ground clearance, the Outback Wilderness is loaded with off-road ready upgrades to take you further than ever before. Adventure elevated with the Subaru Outback Wilderness. Hey, hey, hey. Welcome to Hello Nature from REI Co-op Studios and Subaru. I'm your host, Misha Youssef. This episode is our last stop. I'm going biking in Portland, Oregon, which is on the traditional village sites of the Multnomah, Wasco, Cowlitz, Calumet, Clackamas, Bands of Chinook, Tualatin, Kalapuya, Malala, and many other tribes who made their homes along the Columbia River. You know, I had gone on this big road trip to the American National Parks a couple years ago. And when I came back, people kept telling me, you don't have to go all the way to faraway national parks. Nature is all around us. It's right here, right in our backyard. Just step out your door, put on your shoes, and go for a run, hike, ride, or set up camp. It's as simple as that. But I had this nagging feeling that it wasn't that simple. Because for me, as a person of color, as an immigrant to this country, it doesn't feel that simple. So I thought, okay, let's test it. Let's go out to the biggest cities in America. Let's explore nature there. And let's talk to the people who live there. So I took off in my Subaru with Stephanie Cohn, who is one of my favorite people, and our senior producer for the show. And we met a lot of incredible people. And by people, I mean everyone. People of all ages, races, genders, and body abilities. My name is Allison Mariola Desir. I am Zotunde Morton. Jerry Ernesto Parker Francois. Sabari Widor. Al Calamia. My name is Luisana Mendez. And we asked them, if nature is all around us, why is it so hard for people to access it? What's standing in our way? We can't afford to go. The problem is really the disparity in access to nature. My parents did not have us in nature. Our communities tend to be the last to get the infrastructure. There was never a sense that I belonged, and there was never a sense that I could show up as my full self. Turns out, there are a lot of barriers that get in the way of people experiencing nature, even if it's right outside your front door. This episode, we're talking about two of those barriers that get in the way of experiencing nature specifically experiencing nature through cycling. One of those barriers is literally physical. Not all of us are able-bodied. The streets and vehicles and gear that is so helpful to some of us, well, it's an obstacle to others. Those who have different bodies, different restrictions. But, 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 the city of Portland is kind of ahead of the game. It's doing a lot of things right to eliminate barriers. And Max Woodbury is on the front lines of making that happen. He champions biking accessibility for all bodies in Portland. Stephanie, our senior producer, spoke to him. Hi, my name is Max Woodbury, and I am a GIS specialist at Oregon Metro, and I ride adaptive bikes. Wait, Stephanie, what is a GIS specialist? Don't worry, Misha. I didn't know what it was either. 
So GIS stands for? Geographic Information Systems. And basically, I work with maps and the data that go behind the maps. For instance, I'm working on a really cool project now that involves transit to metro parks. We're doing a study to look and see how many parks are accessible by public transit. And so I am using mapping and routing to see how far it is to go from a public transit stop and get to an Oregon metro nature site or public park. This is just a way to look at how accessible metro parks are. What did you find? Well, the project is still in the works, but so far they found that a lot of the beautiful parks around Portland are pretty far outside of the more urban parts of the city. So that makes it actually not as easy to access because most of the public transit is in the urban area. So Max must have told the city which parks need more access to public transit, right? Basically, yes. Wait, but why does Max care about this so much? Well, Max has always been into nature. I am born and raised in North Carolina. Stephanie, where you live. Yes. So I live in Asheville, which is surrounded by the Blue Ridge Mountains. And one of my favorite weekend activities is going for a drive or a hike in the mountains, which turns out Max loves too. As a kid, he spends a lot of time here. Playing in the water and sliding down little waterfalls. So the mountains have always called to me. But exploring nature on his bike is what he loves most. I have this childhood memory that's really pretty special. My family had this old red Schwinn tandem bicycle. And on the front, there was a little basket. And on the back, there was a little basket. And my sister and I would sit in those as young kids, still too young to really ride bikes. And my family would go on bike rides together. Aw, that's so sweet. I know. My family also went on a lot of family bike rides. But my dad usually had to bribe me and my sisters with ice cream for us to go. The power of ice cream. And bribery. Anyways, Max grows up with this love of nature. So he ends up studying it in college. I graduated from the University of North Carolina with a geology and environmental science degree. He finishes school and he starts working as a field geologist. One of his first jobs out of college is at this environmental cleanup site, an old factory that left behind a bunch of hazardous waste. So one day, he's at work, and he's finishing up for the day. I was dismantling scaffolding, and when I yanked on a piece of plywood on the ground, I didn't notice that one of the screws... The screw head wasn't on, so I didn't know that it had been unscrewed. And so when I was tugging on the piece of plywood, it didn't give. And when I tugged on it harder, not knowing that a screw was holding it, I fell. I fell about 11 feet above an underground walkway. And unfortunately, my hands got tied up as I was falling. Fortunately, I had a hard hat on. And so the force of that blow went straight to my neck. I fractured from the fourth through the seventh vertebrae in my cervical, which 
Now I sustain a six cervical spinal cord injury. He's paralyzed from the shoulders down. Even though I can move my shoulders and arms, I don't have full dexterity in my fingers or in my forearms, in my triceps. So I still can push a manual wheelchair, but I don't have the dexterity to pick up a phone book with one hand without falling over. The beginning is really tough. He has to adjust to a whole new reality. I remember the first time I put on a pair of glasses when I was in the hospital. And it took me about five minutes to unfold the arms of the glasses and put them on my face. I'm a stubborn person. And so for me, I saw it as, hey, things are going to be a little bit different now. I'm going to have challenges, but we all are going through something and we all have our own challenges. There's always things that are limiting for all of us, but there's only so much time we have on this earth. And so for me, I need to make the most of it. It was one of those crazy accidents that I thought about for a long time, but now that I've spent over half of my life in a wheelchair, I don't spend too much time thinking about how it could have been different or how I could have changed that from happening. Wow, I can't imagine what it took to change his mindset like that. It's so easy to dwell on the why me of it all. So for Max to transcend that, man. Yeah, I mean, it took a lot of work, physically and mentally. But one of the things that helps Max the most is actually finding ways to keep doing all the things he loved doing before the accident. I've been involved with adaptive sports as soon as my spinal cord injury happened back in 1996. I play a sport called wheelchair rugby, and several of my teammates were hand cycling at that time, and they said, why haven't you gotten on a hand cycle yet? I didn't really know that it was an opportunity or even an option for me. Keep in mind... Max hasn't been on a bike in 10 years. So one of my friends let me hop on his hand cycle. And I rode for a mile or so on the Springwater Corridor, which is a beautiful rails to trails here in Portland. Basically, you can start in downtown Portland, Oregon, on the waterfront of the Willamette River and ride along it and not have to deal with cars or trucks or loud noises while you're looking at the view of beautiful Mount Hood. And so it's a beautiful place that I had actually been before on my wheelchair, but to be able to go 10 or 15 miles per hour um, with the wind in my face, it was very special. I knew that my friend who let me borrow his hand cycle had given me a gift of something that I was going to do as often as I could. He seems hooked. Does he buy a bike? That's the plan. But buying an adaptive bike isn't always easy. You can't just go down to the local bike shop and find a bike that works for you. Adaptive cycling is really a very general term for people that need something or 
use something different than a regular two-wheeled bicycle. Everyone's need is completely unique. I had to find something that fit my specific needs for my specific body with my specific ability. Now I think in my garage, I have four different ones for four different situations that I use very regularly. Four bikes? Oh my goodness. How are they all different from each other? Yeah, so he's got this really cool one that lets him attach his wheelchair to it. So when he arrives at whatever destination, be it a coffee shop or his office, he can still get around. I didn't even know that existed. Yeah, and he's got another bike that's for exercise, another for off-roading. When I found off-road hand cycling, it was another experience kind of like that first bike ride. Like, oh my gosh, I can get out on the trail. I can be in nature like I used to be. That feels like a powerful feeling. The sense of loss from his old life must be so great. And then to know that it isn't lost, not completely at least. Yes, all this cycling starts to open up his world again. The feeling is such a unique, free, independent sensation. To be able to access that freedom was a huge gift for me and something that I cherish. And he starts to really understand what makes Portland such a famous cycling city. Bicycling in Portland is really special because it's one of the cities in the United States where people actually ride their bikes to work. They ride their bikes to the grocery store. Okay, it's kind of the consensus that Portland is a great biking city. But you know what I don't know? Why? Why is it so great? So Portland has this really special thing called greenways. They're these quiet, slow streets that prioritize people walking, bicycling, rolling. You know, like on skates. And they're pretty well connected. So basically, you can get to different neighborhoods, parks, schools, and businesses, all by greenway. Where I live, I can have access to a greenway within a block of my house. And I can ride that greenway to downtown, to my place of employment, and to other places throughout the city. So these bike paths aren't just isolated routes like the Beltway in Atlanta. They're actually making it easier for people to get from place to place. Yes, exactly. To bike for transportation, not just for fun. Okay, Stephanie, call me skeptical. Is it really that perfect? I mean, of course. There's always room for improvement. But Max really does think the city is doing the work. The city of Portland is really trying to do their best to make sure that people that don't live in the inner city are also getting access to bike facilities. The outskirts of Portland, the real estate is less expensive and there are more variety of demographics there. They didn't always have access to the bike facilities, and I really am proud of the city to really focus their energies to make sure that the biking access and the biking facilities are more equitable. And then there's accessibility for adaptive bikes. That feels like it'd be huge for Max. Totally. And there's all these barriers that Max has to think about every time he gets on his bikes. One of the difficult things for us is when we're at crossings or big street crossings, there's usually a button for someone to hit to initiate 
the light to let you cross. When you're in a hand cycle and you're really low, you can't reach those buttons. One of the solutions for that is to kind of have like a, a long strip that starts on the ground and goes all the way up to an upright person's hand-reaching height. There's a lot of old crossings that could be updated with that. I have to be honest, I've never thought about what those crossings are like for people who can't reach the button. I know. We're able-bodied, so we have that privilege. You know, it's kind of like what we've been talking about this whole season. Who gets a seat at the table? Because it's hard to know what changes to make when you don't experience the problem yourself. Yeah, I feel like it's so important for cities to listen to people with all different lived experiences. Exactly. So when a seat at the table opens up, Max decides to take it. I actually serve on the Bicycle Advisory Committee for the city of Portland, just trying to make sure that adaptive cyclists are being visible and hopefully heard regarding the facilities that are being built throughout the city. And it's gotten me excited because we go on monthly bike rides often to see where new facilities are going to be built. Facilities like Bike Town. We have these orange bikes throughout the city. There's these pods and parking lots where you can actually rent a bike, a regular upright e-bike, and ride it throughout town. And it's wonderful for people to get to and fro if they don't have a car. Oh, yeah, we saw those bikes all over the city. Yes, and of course, we know it's not unique to Portland. A lot of major cities have their own bike share system, like Bike Town. Yes, like Metro Bike in L.A. You can rent bikes by the hour for super cheap and drop them off wherever there's a rack. Esteban, my partner, and I have tried to ride those all the way to my parents' house, which is like 26 miles along the beach. So they're kind of everywhere. Aw, you guys are cute. But there's something that I think makes Portland's bike share program stand out from a lot of the others. What's that? You can actually rent adaptive bicycles. For people who don't have access to be able to spend the thousands of dollars that it takes to purchase a new bike, that's a wonderful opportunity, and it's not necessarily the end-all, be-all solution for people riding adaptive cycles. So the adaptive bike share program is great and super innovative, especially because adaptive bikes are even more expensive than a standard bike. But you can't just provide the service and leave it at that. Right. Accessibility isn't about checking a box. If you can't bring your wheelchair with you, it's hard to use it as transportation. Say you're trying to ride an adaptive bike town bike to a coffee shop. If you can't bring your wheelchair with you, then there's no way for you to get inside or get around once you're there. But wait, doesn't Max have a bike that lets you do that? He does. But Bike Town doesn't. At least not yet. I see that as a potential solution in the future because even though those are specialized and fit specifically for my own wheelchair, they can be modified to fit many different types of wheelchairs. Honestly, I would have never thought of this problem had Max not mentioned it. I know, same. Clearly, this is why we need to include more people at the table. People who've lived these experiences. 
so that we get better solutions. And for Max, these solutions give him the freedom to access nature again. Having kids, I realized that that cherished moment in my childhood, riding the tandem bike with my family, when my accident happened, I thought I was never, ever going to be able to experience it as a father. And when I found hand cycling, I realized this is something that I can do with my family also. And so, yes, we go on family bike rides. We've done a tour of the Trail of the Coeur d'Alene's and went on a bike trip during COVID for five days throughout Idaho. Biking is definitely a special place where we can all be ourselves and be together. And hopefully, as we continue to grow and as our kids move on, they'll continue to have bicycling and cycling as a special part of our lives. You know, Max's story makes me think of two other cyclists we talked to in Portland, Alexis and Nanette. Especially how Max is thinking about passing cycling and the love of nature down to his children. Alexis and Nanette are an indigenous cycling couple. Our first Hello Nature couple. As indigenous riders, they think a lot about what has been passed down to them and what they will be able to pass down to future generations. But wherever you stand, wherever you are in the United States is literal, like Native American land is indigenous lands. But that's after the break. Visiting one of the best-known bike cities in the U.S. has opened my eyes to what inclusive biking can look like. I've already started dreaming up how I can bring elements of what Alexis and Annette are doing in Portland. And creative inclusive spaces outside spans beyond just biking. I wonder what kinds of cities we could create if we all took our favorite ways to adventure and invited others in, creating space for belonging and connection. What kind of world could we live in? Okay, you caught me daydreaming. Back to Portland, I had a blast biking through the city this season, and none of it would have been possible without the help of my Subaru. The 2024 Subaru Outback Wilderness was key in packing up my bike and making it out and onto the trails. It has standard symmetrical all-wheel drive, off-road tires, and 9.5 inches of ground clearance. Plus, comfy water repellent interiors that make it the ideal vehicle when you're gearing up and heading out. Learn more about the Subaru Outback Wilderness at Subaru.com slash wilderness. Meet Nanette. So, yat e shi'e ya Nanette biyal yinish ya ho'ethlan inishlin glashe abashashin tachi inindashache do tabahandashinale. So, hello. I just introduced myself in my language, which is Dine, also known as Navajo. I started with basically announcing who I am, which is my clan, which means Hohlana. Um, we announce our first four clans, and it's kind of like a PSA to be like, hey, who's out there? Who's related to me? I'm Nanette. I'm a architecture student here at PSU, Portland State University. I'm from Shiprock, New Mexico, was born and raised in the reservation there in the Navajo Nation, and then migrated to Central Oregon. Will you tell me what your pronouns are? 
Yeah, my pronouns are she, her, they, them. So I'm non-binary. I'm still learning how to introduce myself in my own language. How to say that I'm non-binary because in Diné culture, we have about six different genders. And Alexis. I'm Alexis Danielle Vasquez, born in Brooklyn, lived in Puerto Rico for the first two and a half, three years of my life, then moved back to Brooklyn. And what are your pronouns? They are she and they. So tell me about how you two meet. We met online, actually. I think I specifically remember their face and... I could just tell that they're really dorky and, like, fun. So I obviously swiped right. Also, definitely one of the reasons, like, Portland is just really a huge place where there's just really rarely any BIPOC anybody. So even just having a friend, even if there was no romantics at all, like, Alexis and I would be really good friends because we have really similar interests. Dimples for sure. Their bio is like, oh, I'm an indigenous. I was like, oh, cool. I want to learn more about that. Alexis isn't just curious because they think Nanette is cute. Alexis is also indigenous. So both of my sides of my family are Puerto Rican. My mom's side is a little bit more colonized, so to speak. She's like translucently white, you know, <laughs> like she's very, very white, but she's 100% Puerto Rican. Whereas my dad's side, it's Taino blood through and through. There's nothing mixed there. So just kind of have a little bit of both. I wake up being super proud of who I am every single day. Alexis spent the first few years of her life in Puerto Rico. So my first memory of nature has to be back in Puerto Rico. And it would have to be on the farm that my family owned. We have a few plots of land. It's like my uncles, my aunts. My grandma has some land over there as well. And yeah, they used to just like literally live off the land and just make things like tostones, like fried plantains. It's actually in Puerto Rico where Alexis rides a bike for the first time. We were little, so we just grab our little bikes to training wheels and... Definitely got in trouble a bunch of times because we were riding it like on the wrong parts of the farm, like where things were growing. We had a lot of fun on those farms, catching like fireflies and things of like that, and like little mason jars, like as a kid. Like, and like six months later, I actually ended up moving back to New York. And let's be real, being outside in New York is a huge change from a farm in Puerto Rico. As a child in Brooklyn, like low-income families. You know, it's like a fire hydrant is like the best part of your summer. <laughs> Even after moving, Puerto Rico is a part of Alexis. It's an identity she's super proud of, especially being indigenous, being Taino. But at the same time, Alexis doesn't really know a lot about it. Like, what does that mean? What are my traditions? What are my tribes? They think maybe that's super common for indigenous kids. But then they meet Nanette. And Nanette knows a lot about their own Navajo culture. But as they fall more in love, Alexis learns that this wasn't always the case. It wasn't easy for Nanette to learn about their Navajo and Diné roots. My family is a very good example of what colonization had done and how successful assimilation was and how successful it was to stigmatize an entire person's culture and to make them 
afraid to pursue learning that about themselves or learning anything about themselves. Nanette's parents refused to teach her family the Navajo language. They refused to teach us our traditional stories, and we also weren't allowed to participate in those in our household either. So we didn't get a chance to kind of do what a lot of traditional Navajo families do. So why do you think that your family specifically was more affected by the colonizer assimilation attempts to the point where they like until recently have been like trying to keep you from acquiring information about your culture? It's kind of hard to say. I really think that boarding school did have like a really huge effect, like children who are literally taken from their homes and removed and then not allowed to participate in anything that they have traditionally had. Here's what Nanette is talking about. When white settlers moved to what is now the United States, they decided that indigenous people need to assimilate to white culture. They did this in a lot of ways. But one of the big ones was boarding schools. Between 1819 and 1969, the United States ran or supported 408 boarding schools, and they forced Native families to send their children to these schools. The schools required kids to cut their hair off, they made Indigenous children wear only American clothing, and they banned them from practicing their own religions. The U.S. Department of Interior put out a report in 2022, and they found that over 500 students died at these supposed places of education. The boarding schools also created an inherent class system, systemic oppression. There was this one school called Carlisle. It was in Carlisle, Pennsylvania, and it opened in 1897. It was the first government-run boarding school for Native children. And there, one of the big ideas that took hold was that Indigenous people are good with their hands. So half of the day, the school forces kids to do manual labor and vocational training. Other boarding schools also copy this idea of vocational training and manual labor, which means Native kids are not being taught the same things white kids are. They're not learning what they need to learn so they can choose their professions, especially professions that have high-earning power or social status. This means they often become relegated to lower classes. You just basically take away their autonomy and tell them that they can't be who they are. And then you... Take that, and then you also put them in a leadership role. In their own communities and on reservations. Where they're going to have to teach others how they're not supposed to be who they are. You have other people around you who look just like you, who are convincing you that it's not okay to be who you are. So, Nett's parents keep them from their own indigenous culture. But, 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 but... They are living on a reservation. It's all around them. They're surrounded by other Diné and Navajo kids. And the first rule of being a kid is get super into the things your parents are trying to keep you from. I think I remember it just starting with language first. It was my siblings, actually, who had taught me how to introduce myself. They learn myths and history superstitions and traditions, language and customs. And some of these customs are rooted in gender and gender identities. So how I learned that specifically about genders was 
I think it was the summer I had gone home for the pandemic and there is a Navajo Nation Pride that was happening in June or July. They just had speeches where they talked about, you know, what it means to be of a different gender that has been suppressed and the names and the traditional stories behind that. There's a lot of Diné creation stories basically explaining during portions of time in our history where we had helped like keep together our community, built our community, and also kind of just really good at filling in the in-betweens of where gender roles stop. Basically how we just kept it all together for a long time. So Nat learns about their gender identity and feels even more connected to their culture than before. They've always been accepted, exactly as they are. Then, Nat moves to Oregon. They long for that feeling of home, that belonging that they found within their tribe. When I first moved to Bend, Oregon, my brother had given me some advice. So I called him and told him that I was super lonely and like sad that I had moved away. I was expecting not to see as many brown people, of course, but I already knew I had prepared my whole life for something like a culture shock before it had moved to Ben. And their brother says something super simple. He's just like, yeah, go out in nature and just explore with your feet. Like, go run around and get lost and see if you can find some trail that you had not known about. So Nut decides to go for a run. And I found a couple of really nice views. And, and then that running just turned into me grabbing a bike. And it really just became kind of like meditation to me, just riding and kind of getting lost, really having that alone time with yourself of just like wondering where this like ant that was crossing the trail, where that would go, how it exists and bringing a bigger picture to yourself. Nanette then moves from Bend to Portland. And this is where Alexis and Nanette come together. We met up for coffee actually like two blocks away from here. And it was just supposed to be coffee, and we ended up hanging out for like eight hours. And then we hung out every single day after that, till now. (laughs) So remember how Nanette moved to Bend, Oregon, and fell in love with biking? They really want to go on adventures around Portland to explore the nature, the incredible trails around the city. They buy their own e-bike, and they decide they want Alexis to do this with them share what they love with the person they love. And then we just kind of became obsessed with it. We have such a great infrastructure for it that it just kind of made sense to do. We kind of just like went around and enjoyed biking so much that we then were like, well, I want to bike with people that look like me. So they go looking. Alexis learns about Pedalpalooza, which, by the way, is just as fun as its name. So it's basically a summer festival for cyclists led by Portland local Megan Seanot. Between June and August, Pedalpalooza invites community members to host their own rides. You plan it, and Pedalpalooza will promote it. Every year, there are hundreds of different rides. And there's something for everyone. For people who love hip-hop, for wine connoisseurs, nudists, beekeepers. There's even one for people who have pet lizards. There are rides for activists who want to raise awareness for a cause, for different communities of color. Last year, they even started one for adaptive cyclists. 
Okay, so back to Alexis. They're looking on the website, and they see... A Latin ride. And they decide to join. And I got to meet some of the most amazing people, literally people that we hang out with on, like, a regular basis. And, you know, just listen to, like, old-school Ricky Martin and Mark Anthony and just, like, vibed the whole way. And it was such a great experience to, like, be in community and, like, share that cultural aspect of things while outside. And that was, like, my first experience with something like that in Portland was a Pedalpalooza ride. And it kind of just spiraled from there. They're like, where else can I find people like me to ride with? So we started looking into, like, BIPOC communities, bike communities here, and we found Bike Poc, uh, which is awesome. So they're going on all these rides, spending a lot of time with bike riders of color. This gets Nanette's wheels turning. Yes, pun intended. They get an idea. And how it came to fruition, I guess, with me, or why it was such a big idea, was I just had a tough conversation with someone I had met at school and we were discussing like, you know, the topic of identity. And so we wanted to kind of have a space that was inclusive to those that had either fallen out of blood quantum who don't have that Native American status through the federal government anymore. We talked about blood quantum in episode four of season one. If you want to learn more about the concept, its history and present day impact, I recommend listening to that episode. It's called Hello Glacier. Anyway, back to Nanette. And then also those who are indigenous to places that they've been historically pushed out of. Like their partner Alexis, who hasn't been back to Puerto Rico in years. We talk about why Alexis doesn't go back there as often, but it's also about access. It's about people being pushed out of their ancestral lands because, you know, Puerto Rico is such a beautiful place. Uh, Like, who wouldn't want to be on an island like that? And so... We wanted to create a space where we could have conversations about where someone's identity exists or could begin to exist. We could decide on our own who we actually are. And in a way, this is Nanette's way of bringing Alexis even more into the fold. They help Alexis connect more to their own roots. We wanted to do it a little bit broader, so Native and Indigenous, because I can't go to a Native ride. So I wanted to make one for both of us where we could feel like Native and Indigenous people could do it. So you decided to put together this ride. What's step one? We came to Will and we said, hey, we have this Native and Indigenous ride that we'd like to do. Will Cortez runs Bike Park and is a huge mentor to Alexis and Nanette. And he said, hell yeah. And then Petopalooza was just a way of us getting it out there, letting people know about it. So we like strategize on what type of businesses and organizations that we wanted to reach out to. Where do we want the money to come from? We wanted all the money to come from non-Brown organizations, non-Brown people. And so I wanted to invite people who have historically been separated from our communities and have always asked questions like how can they help or how can they contribute to a community that isn't theirs or that they have been, you know, subconsciously or consciously oppressing. How can they help? And so Portland was already looking for that and we just kind of created a, a vessel for people to come in and contribute to something that they've wanted to for a minute. And we raised like, was it like three grand? Like three grand in about a week. So we were able to to really pay out everybody. 
really well, like tip all the vendors. Who, by the way, were pretty much all indigenous. We hired like a Navajo photographer. Our DJ was indigenous. We wanted a Navajo artist to be there. We wanted to obviously showcase the one food that everybody could come around in this community. You can't have a native and indigenous <laughs> bike ride without fry bread. People were so into the idea because it just had not been done before that it just kind of like snowballed. And then the day of the ride arrives. That day was really, really beautiful and like really, really powerful. Just to see so many people like, it's not even like that look like us, but it's just like, they had like the same way of talking as us, you know, like Native and Indigenous people, we just have like a different way of talking and like joking and a sense of humor. And that was just like so clear that day. It was really, really just like beautiful, like seeing you with everybody and just like seeing everybody being so happy and just just rowdy as hell, just like a bunch of <laughs> rowdy Indigenous people. And it was just beautiful because we could be rowdy and we could be loud and it was okay for once. <laughs> yeah, I think for me, how I view rural spaces and urban spaces, like growing up in my head, I thought as rural spaces as only like spaces where Native Americans exist. I grew up, you know, on a reservation that's not near a very major town or city like Portland, but wherever you stand, wherever you are in the United States is literal, like Native American land is indigenous lands. And so just going across a bridge or going alongside the Willamette River, I was remembering that these lands historically belonged to someone else. You know, having events like this, that's just the beginning of raising awareness about, hey, like we're still here. There was attempted genocide, attempted assimilation, but we're still here and we're still going to show up and we're still going to show up in spaces where you thought we historically did not belong, but we do. Even in downtown Portland, even in Portland State University, you're on indigenous lands and it's time to start giving that back or giving those spaces back or opening up those doors because we're still here and we're going to keep continuing to speak our narrative wherever we are in the United States. I think of my first moment to hear of like, oh my God, like this is home, is like crossing Tillicum Bridge with a group of people who identified as Native American and Indigenous. And I looked down the line and saw we were all had our own flags, our own, you know, t-shirts and things saying where we're from. I look back and I was like, I'm around people who think like me, who look like me. This is my home. I feel like simple ideas are so enticing. We want to believe them because they feel like they're empowering, like they give us agency, like they allow us to create our own story. There's a simple idea we've been talking about in this show all season. Nature is all around us. It's as simple as exploring your own backyard. But the more people I've talked to, we can't afford to go. Our communities tend to be the last to get the infrastructure. There was never a sense that I belonged, and there was never a sense that I could show up as my full self. The more I've realized that nature is all around us, that's a little too simple. Because there are people like Max Woodbury who have to fight to experience nature as an adaptive cyclist. There are neighborhoods like Baldwin Hills 
that have to fight to have a park in their backyard. There are cities like Atlanta that have to fight to have bike lanes in black neighborhoods, bike lanes that don't push black people out, that don't displace them. And these people have been fighting for years. And if people are fighting, if they've been fighting that long, then is it really that easy? The truth is, outside our doors, there are entire systems at play. Systems of oppression. Systems built on fear. Systems that discriminate. Systems that create real obstacles in the way of a lot of people. Immigrants, queer and trans people, black and indigenous people, people of color. Barriers like redlining and gentrification, like indigenous boarding schools and generational trauma. Systems that have existed since the founding of this country. When we repeat simple phrases like, nature is all around us, we let entire systems off the hook. We put the blame squarely on the people, people who have been the most left out. All of a sudden, the question goes from, why is it so hard to access the nature all around us? To, what on earth is wrong with you? Why won't you just go outside your front door? But the truth is, there's nothing wrong with us. We're protecting ourselves and our home. We're scared of the trauma we have experienced for hundreds of years. We don't want history to repeat itself. There's something dangerous in simple ideas. But there's also something bold and hopeful about the people who challenge them. People who say it doesn't matter how close or how far you are from a park or a trail or a tree, your experience is real. The barriers you face are real. The mental ones, the physical ones, the systemic ones. And all of this nature, despite all of the barriers, this is still for you. And it'll be here when you're ready. There is a lot that will make you feel like you don't belong here. But from the moment you are born, you do. You belong. Let your feet touch the grass. Let the wind dance through your hair. Let your skin feel the sun. Because this is America. And this land, this land is your land too. This episode is brought to you by Subaru. Did you know that since 2004, all Subaru vehicles have been manufactured at a zero landfill auto plant? That means that if you put a single bag of trash at your curb this week, you've sent more to a landfill than the Subaru of Indiana assembly plant will this entire year. I was able to visit Subaru's zero landfill auto plant earlier this year and was blown away by what I learned. Oh, wow. So exciting. The associates are the stars of this program. They created it and they continue to make it work every day. No manager, no vice president, no one can understand the process as well as that person who stands there on that line for eight hours a day, 238 days a year, doing that job over and over. And once you tap into that energy and once you ask the people, they'll tell you. They know. 
they know exactly what needs to be done. So they start coming up with ideas on in their own little portion of the line that they worked on every day, things that they thought could be improved for the environment. Thousands and thousands and thousands of ideas came in. And at the time we started, we were generating 459 pounds of waste for every vehicle we made. Now it's, it's around 210 pounds. There's a small amount that goes to a waste energy facility and the rest is recycled. Learn more about Subaru Zero Landfill Plant at Subaru.com slash environment. This episode of Hello Nature from REI Co-op Studios was brought to you by Subaru. It was produced by Dustlight Productions. I'm your host and executive producer, Misha Youssef. Thank you so much for listening to this season and going on this journey with us. If you like the show, please make sure to rate and leave a review and tell a friend. Thank you to all of the brilliant and kind guests who trusted us with their stories. This show was made by an incredible team of my favorite humans. It was written by me, Misha Youssef, and Stephanie Cohn. It was assembled and fact-checked by Stephanie Cohn and sound designed by Elizabeth Nakano. Valeria Alarcone provided additional production help. Stephanie Cohn is our senior producer. Valentino Rivera is our engineer. Carly Bond is our composer. Elizabeth Goodspeed is our art director and designer. Joshua Ariza is our illustrator. Chrissy Marin is our attorney and did production legal for the season. I did all of my recordings at Studio Awesome. Stephanie recorded at Drop of Sun Studios. Thank you to Jake Valentine and Lawson Alderson for engineering. Thank you to the season one team on whose shoulders we stand. Arwen Nix, Jonathan Shiflett, Elizabeth Nakano, Ariana Lee, Francesca Diaz, and Chelsea Davis. Our executive producers from REI are Paolo Matola and Joe Crosby. Senior producers are Hannah Boyd and Jenny Barber. Katie Van Fleet edited our video social trailer. Clifford Merrillville was our photographer. Thank you to the entire REI Co-op Studios, Subaru, and Field Scout teams for all of your hard work. If you're looking for a podcast that can change your life and inspire you to chase down your biggest, boldest dreams, check out REI Co-op's Wild Ideas Worth Living. Hosted by journalist, author, adventurer, and all-around curious person, Shelby Stanger, this podcast features stories from people who took the path less traveled and brought their wildest ideas to life. Some of the most popular episodes include The Wisdom of Expeditions with famous rock climber and mountaineer Conrad Anker, Ice Swimming with Melissa Kegler, and Life on a Highline with professional highliner Faith Dickey. Whether they're walking across America, breaking the fastest known times, summiting mountains, or breaking down barriers, guests on wild ideas worth living are all chasing something wild, something they're passionate about. Who knows? Tuning in may just inspire you to do the same. You can find wild ideas worth living wherever you listen to podcasts. Now go on and get out there.